camping. Uh, seemed like many are. Really, really uh, excited about meeting with you guys together today and worshiping the Lord. I'm grateful for this team that's led us into worship, and um, I pray and hope and have been planning toward a, a, meaning, a meaningful morning. Um, I, I, my, my heart is that you'll be reminded of something that is worth remembering, that is important to remember, and that you'll have the grace that you need to kind of capture that essential truth and respond to it in a way that's faithful in your life, and, uh, that you'll leave here just more centered, more whole, more aware of what's true and who you are in Christ, who you're invited to be. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 today, and it's a significant amount of scripture. It's a whole chapter that I'm going to try to summarize, so I'm not going to put it on the screen as I normally do. So if you are like, well, he always puts it on the screen. Today, this, this, you need the Bible. So if you didn't bring your own, uh, go ahead and ask one of the ushers for one. We're, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3, which is at the end of the Old Testament. It's on page 615. 615, if you like to follow along, which I, um, which I recommend. Also, if you are seated um, on the end of an aisle and there's a basket underneath your chair, would you grab that? And if you need a communication card, take one, fill it out, hand the basket down. This is for comments. It's for email information, uh, contact information updates. It's for those kinds of things. So we go through them on Mondays and... Pray for those who ask for prayer and make sure that our contacts are up to date. All right, Daniel chapter 3, page 615. We're in a series, our summer series is called The Well-Worn Path. And what we're doing is we're looking at some ancient, old stories that communicate bedrock truths in the, um, the general sort of story of the Bible. And these truths that we're choosing, are, we're, they're being chosen because they're so important. They're too important to forget. So much of the error that families fall into, that individuals fall into, that the Christian faith has fallen into, that countries fall into, is rooted in the failure to remember what we've learned in the past. Am I right? And so it's really important for us to, uh, since this has been so well protected and preserved that we don't forget the essential stories, um, especially the, the big stories that are, that are in it. We want to learn these stories. We want to... Um, understand the significance of these stories, and, and really I'm hoping that they, these stories inform our future, that they shape the journey that we are on now and, and moving forward in. The story that we're looking at today communicates a core biblical truth, and it communicates it in a really dramatic way, which is helpful for us because it's more memorable. And this essentially is the truth that the story is going to communicate. God is always with you. God is always with you. And if you can say it like this, it also says this, God is especially with you in hard times. He's especially with you in a sense in times of trial. So I don't expect for this to be a new idea to very many of you, but I do expect for this to be an idea that most of you are like, I need to remember that. I need to be reminded of that and to sit with that for enough time that I know kind of how to respond, what difference that kind of bedrock truth should make in my life. Amen? Amen. Good. So let's go to the background of this story. It's 600 years before Jesus is born, and uh, Israel is attacked several times by the up-and-coming world power, this country called Babylon. Now, uh, there's a, it's kind of in the afterglow, or it's actually, farther, it's in the generations following King David. 
when, like the highlight, the golden years of the nation of Israel. Several um, leaders after David have not done a good job. They've given in to all kinds of temptation and idolatry, and so Israel has just plummeted, and the new dog in town is this country called Babylon, and Babylon attacks Israel several times over three years and begins to take away anything they want from Israel. Um, and in one of these attacks, they take away thousands of people out of Israel, including anybody that they deem important enough to benefit their country, including some people from the royal family who are, it's really interesting, they're some of the most elite, some of the most promising young people in Israel. And this is the way they're described earlier in the book of Daniel. They're from the royal family. They're physically strong. It says they were good looking, which I think is funny. Um, it says they were good learners. They were already well informed. They were generally qualified to perform at a high level. These are the people that Babylon's interested in bringing to their country, re-educating. So that's what happens. They go through this sort of Olympic training school. They, they eat a special, a special diet. They learn the language. They learn the culture of Babylon. Why? So they can serve the king. That's the only reason. Their property. They're going to just serve the king. So the story that we're going to look at today features three of these Hebrews who have been taken away from their country and basically uh, imprisoned and trained. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but they get renamed, and that's probably their new names are the names you may be familiar with. Their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So even though these guys are super gifted, even though they're part of the royal family in Israel, those days are long gone. Those days are ancient history. Now these guys, who used to be strong, now they're weak. They, even though they've been placed in positions of authority and responsibility in Babylon, the reality is they're vulnerable. The reality is, is their property. They don't even have their own names anymore. Just in case you wonder whose you are, who you belong to when you look in the mirror, you don't even have your own name anymore because you are in service of the king of Babylon. They're the weak, the Hebrew young men. The strong in the story is King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, arguably the most powerful man in the world at this time. And so here's what happens in Daniel chapter 3, um, and I'm going to read just the first six verses. Daniel chapter 3 is on page 615. Oh my goodness. All right, here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. I don't know why it says cubits in this translation. 90 feet is basically how big it is. And set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So he makes this big gold statue. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials, basically anybody who's anybody, to come to the dedication of the image that he has set up. So... You can tell this is written to be retold because we're going to repeat that same thing. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the other provincial, uh, provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, all kinds of music. It's so thorough. Um, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever, here's the key, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. All right, a little bit of uh, incentive there. So that's the problem. That's the problem. Um, we're reading a story from 
a Hebrew prophet written about some Hebrew boys. They're taken captive to worship a, and they're asked to worship a a 90-foot golden statue. What's the problem with that? I put the slide up too fast so you can see what the problem is with that, right? The problem is that's going to be idolatry, right? That is going to be a breaking of the first two of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an image of God. So there's the first two. They're going to break right away here. It is a blatant violation of the Ten Commandments. And it's really interesting to me that idolatry is the problem or the crisis of this story. Why is that interesting? Because idolatry is the problem that got Israel into this place in the first place. Idolatry is what led the people of Israel to, to fall from empower to totally uh, a disastrous, vulnerable nation that's being just routed by whoever wants to, to come and take their stuff. Idolatry has always been a problem for Israel, but it's gotten really bad in recent generations leading up to this story. And, and no other sin... This is important. No other sin is as seriously denounced in the Bible as the sin of idolatry. So let's talk about that just for a second because we need to engage that and not just say, oh, that's old Bible because Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, that hardly feels relevant. But idolatry, even though it's a kind of a weird word, super, super relevant for us. Basically, two ways that we fall into the sin of idolatry. The first is to misrepresent God. That is, to, uh, where God is worshipped by name, but the attributes of some other system or some other deity are placed, are sort of superimposed on God. So this is when we refer to God as God, but we misrepresent what God is about. This happens all of the time. This is when we make God into our own image. We make God in our own image. You've heard that phrase, right? So we're talking about God, we're referring to God, and yet if you look carefully at our position, you realize that, gosh, we've sort of attributed all kinds of our own values to God. And this is a problem. This is a problem. This is when we make God into our own image. This is happening already. You're going to see it happening more and more in the presidential um, process, the election this is the strategy. It's happening on both sides. You link yourself to God in name, but not in attributes, and you hope nobody notices, right? And nobody does notice because we're all doing the same thing. We're using the name of God for our own purpose, and as long as we just label it what we want to label it, people aren't as willing to kind of look down and say, gosh, does that even match up with what's revealed about God? So we call ourselves Christian, and yet we define Christianity according to kind of what we're comfortable with. Guys, it's the same thing. It's what they're doing. It's what we do. This is one common form of idolatry. It is to misrepresent God. Another, a second form of idolatry is to replace God with something else or someone else. The Bible, and when this happens in the Bible, they usually stop worshiping God. They worship the God of this land or they worship the, the God of fertility or they, they get sucked into the pursuit of money or power. When we do this in our, in our culture, we pursue the God of our land, right? We pursue sex. We, we pursue money. We pursue power. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. We're, we're, we're enticed by the same kinds of things. And we, it sounds strange to say we worship those things, which is what idolatry kind of infers. But if you look at the way we spend time and money, and you define worship as what gets attributed to your ultimate value and worth, it's an easy thing to say, well, clearly. Clearly we are worshiping in, in, in the same way. We're worshiping these things. So idolatry, to misrepresent God or to replace God, 
repeatedly denounced in the Bible, yet continually a problem. Okay? So back to the story, you've got these three dudes, they have an incredibly limited freedom, they have almost no power, and then you've got the king, he's got all the power. The problem is that the king has required the people to worship this image that he has set up, and everyone else who's in power, ironically, in my opinion, goes right along with him. They're like sheep, they just do exactly what he's going to say. The problem primarily for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is if they do that, if they go along with the culture... If they go along with everybody else, and they had a lot to lose because they'd just been given a position of authority over Babylon. They have a lot to lose. But if they go along with the, with the whole company, they go along with everybody in your friend group, they go along with everybody in the family who's doing this thing, if they do that, then they know in their hearts and in their minds that, that they're going to clearly sin against God because they're going to break a couple of big commandments. So the challenge is to stand up to the machine. That's the challenge. The challenge is to trust God. God and to um, remain faithful to him. Here's what happens next. Let me read chapter 3, starting in verse 8. I'll read a few more verses. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. These are those three Hebrew guys. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and all these instruments must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship the image of gold will be thrown into the blazing furnace. They repeat the command. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and they named them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you set up. Furious! With rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought to the king. Nebuchadnezzar says, Is it true that you don't worship my gods? You don't worship this image that I've set up? Now he's going to give them a second chance. When you hear the instruments, bow down. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then he says, he asks a great question. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He is totally calling them out. What are you going to do about it? Because I've got you. Who's going to rescue you? And now listen to the response. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. So the challenge is to trust or place your faith in God. And we say this all the time. You just need to trust God. You had this horrible experience. Your family's under duress. This thing just broke in your life. Uh, all kinds of issues, real-life challenges, real-life problems. And the response from the church, the response from people of faith, the response probably from me often is you just need to trust God. Well, what in the world does that mean? This is a beautiful story for many reasons, and one, one of them is it kind of articulates what that means, to trust God. Listen to the three characteristics of God that the, the Hebrew um, slaves, essentially, are so, they're trusting in. Look at this. They say they're trusting in his ability and God's ability to rescue them. It says in verse 17, they say the God we serve is able to save us. So when somebody says you need to trust God, one of the things that means is you need to trust in God's ability. 
He's got the power. He's got what it takes. We place our trust in that. Secondly, trust in God's willingness. This takes it to another level, at least for me. They say, he will rescue us from your hand. This is very hard for me to do sometimes because I've prayed for a lot of things without a real certainty that God will do that. Like when people are, I'm praying for people to be healed. These folks are certain that God is able and willing. Okay, so they're putting their trust in God. What does that mean? It means they're, they're trusting in his ability and they're trusting in his willingness. And third, and this takes it to a whole different level, they're trusting in his control over the general situation. They say, even if he doesn't, we're not worshiping your gods. We will not compromise. We are not going to go against the teachings of our God. How do you get to that point? You trust in God, his ability to, his control over the bigger situation. Even if he doesn't get healed, I'm still going to trust in you, right? Even if I don't get a job, it's Peter saying, Who, where else are we going to go, Jesus? You've got the words of life. It's like, even if it doesn't get better, I'm still going to be faithful to you. It's a challenging place to be, but it's what we're called toward, right? Next, here's what happens. I'll paraphrase this. The king gets totally furious, as you can imagine. He goes from offering them a second chance to being really, really upset. He orders the furnace be heated seven times its uh, original heat. He has them tied up and bound. The soldiers then take them, throw them into the furnace. They get so close to the furnace and it's so hot that the soldiers who throw the guys in, they die, right? Um, it, it's just this terrible, brutal story. I was talking to Karen uh, Thompson, who writes our kids' curriculum, about this story and this whole summer series. We're writing all these stories for kids, these Old Testament stories, right? And it's so funny because so many of them are just brutal, horrible, you know, intense, violent stories. And we think of so many of them as kids' stories, which, which is a little bit, you know, I just sort of kind of giggled at that. It's like you're putting your kid to sleep. And okay, before you go to bed, we're going to read a story about people who love God who are burned <laughs> in a big pizza oven. Okay, so... Jesus loves you. Sweet dreams. <laughs> See you in the morning. I mean, we, we, we can kind of laugh at it and don't see it as horrible because we know that it has sort of a happy ending. Um, and that's what it does. And I'm going to paraphrase the rest of it, and then I'll go back and point out something. The three guys, they actually, in case, they don't burn to death. It's another, the faithful are protected, the weak are made strong. It's another example of God's ability to deliver his people. The king, in the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar, right? He praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then he praises Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not um, turning their back on their God. And then he makes a new law and says anybody who says anything bad about their God is going to get cut to pieces and their houses are going to get burned down. This guy's got a real anger issue. And then at the end, he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to better jobs. So it's like this over-the-top sort of comprehensive deliverance story. But it's not just another deliverance story. It would be wonderful if it was. It would be beautiful if it was, because we need to believe that God will deliver us. But it's, it's not just that because of this unexpected surprise that's a part of this story. And some of you know what it is. Let me read it. It's in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 3. This is when they're in the furnace before they come out. So I'm kind of going back into the story. They're in the furnace. Guys who put them in the furnace have died. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and we threw into the furnace? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. Verse 25, he said, look, I see 
Four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. So, three men are tied up and thrown in the fire. Then four men are seen untied and in the fire walking around. Not only are these men not harmed by the fire, but hear me, friends, somebody else is in there with them. Okay? Somebody else is in the fire with them. Here's the point of the story. God is always with you. And he is, if we can just sort of stretch the lines of literal, he is especially with you in the trial. He is especially with you in the fire. Let me ask a couple of questions. Why isn't this simply a story about God's deliverance? Why isn't that enough right now for this? Why, in other words, why do we need to know the whole part about the fourth man in the furnace? Why was this story recorded and retold over and over again like it has been for the last 2,500 years to the faithful people of God? It's because we need to hear and we need to be reminded that God is with us and that he's especially with us in the trial, and it's because it's when we're in the trial that we doubt, right? If I tell you he's always with you, the, the default human, I think, emotional reaction is then when hard times come, we go, but, oh, but now? Because all the, all the evidence in my life seems to indicate the contrary because everything's falling apart. It's in the trials that we begin to doubt. It's in the hardest times when we wonder, does God see me? Is God hearing me right now? Does God really know what's going on? And here's the real one. Does God care? A friend of mine uh, just lost his father to a horrible disease. And uh, my friend who is a Christian, we had breakfast and he made this, this observation that I felt was so powerful. This is what he said. He said, you know, I never asked the question why. That would have been understandable and that would have been fair. Not so much helpful, but it would have been understandable. We never asked the question why. I never asked, why did my dad get this disease? Why did he lose his dignity, like to an extreme level? Uh, why did his life get cut short? I never asked that. I never asked, why is my mom going to be alone now, even though she's young? He said, I just didn't ask those questions. He said, but here's the question I asked, and I asked it, and it was hard. He said, the question I asked was where, not the why question. I asked where. Where's God? Where is God in this suffering? Where is God in this dark night of the soul? Where is God in this grief and in this brokenness? Where is God in all of this? And that really moved me, friends. That really resonated with something in me. Because I think the why question looks for information. The why question wants a reason. The why question is demanding understanding in the head. And we all do that, and I think it's one of the ways we kind of keep a safe distance from the real issue, because the real issue isn't the confusion in our head. The real condition is the confusion in our heart. Right? It's the where question that is the question of the heart. Where are you? That's not looking for an answer. That's longing for presence. Where are you? I am longing for the assurance and the comfort that comes with knowing that I'm not alone. 
that you're here with me. When people ask in their pain, when people ask the question, where is God? That's not a head question at all. That's a heart question. It's a looking for comfort and assurance that comes with presence. My brother-in-law, Clay, he says that the moment he broke, the moment he surrendered his life was not when he got arrested. It's not the trial. It's not the sentencing. It's not what he went to jail. It was the phone call from jail where he heard his daughter in the background screaming, Where are you? Where are you? He said that just that was it. Totally broken at that point. That was when he broke. Because the where question isn't about information. <laughs> the person doesn't want to know information. They're not the where question is not give me a location. I'm in Texas. That's not what she's asking, right? She's asking the where question asks, do you care? That's the where question. Do you care? Do you see? Are you aware? Is there any comfort that I can expect from you in this pain? Where are you? Do you see me? When we ask that question of God, we're saying, God, do you see me? God, are you aware of what's going on? Are you aware of this pain? Really, when we ask, where is God? We're asking, God, do you care about me? Do you care about this? Do you care about what's happening over there to those people? Do you care what just happened to these people? Do you care about all of these who are weak? Do you care? That's the where question. And and so the story of the fiery furnace has been told, and it's been retold over and over along the well-worn path of the Christian faith because it graphically and directly addresses this question of the heart. Where is God? That's the question it addresses. Where is God in the pain? Where is God in the the hard times? Where is God in the trials? And that's the question we ask when we're afraid. That's the question we ask when we feel alone. When we're longing for presence, that's the question we're asking. And the ancient story fuels our hearts in this direction. It pushes us towards this revolutionary idea. Are you ready for it? This is the idea that it pushes us. You are not alone. That's the, you are not alone. Okay. That's what this story communicates at a level that is intended to move you so in, in a way that you never forget, in a way that you cannot deny. Right? You're not alone. You're never alone. It is never just you. Okay. It is never only you in the furnace. It is always you plus one. Okay. I'm all alone. I'm in this trial. Nobody's here with me. Nobody hears. Nobody sees. Nobody cares. This story says, yes, you are in the trial, but no, you're not alone. Okay. There's somebody else in there with you. King Nebuchadnezzar in the story says, he looks like a son of the gods. Listen, the fourth man in the furnace in Daniel has been a mystery throughout the Old Testament. Who is that guy in there? Nobody ever really knows for sure. Nebuchadnezzar says he looks like a son of the gods. And the next sentence, he says he's an angel. The word means a messenger from God, a representative from God. The essential principle, though, is this. The essential interpretation principle, as we read Old Testament stories in light of the New Testament, is to see that all the Old Testament stories, including this one, point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Christ, right? This is, the, this is the value of understanding the Old Testament within the context of the New and vice versa. So 
Hundreds of years later, it's the first Easter morning. Jesus is walking on this road to Emmaus, and he joins these two other travelers. And they're devastated, and they're talking. One thing leads to another. He asks them some questions, and he begins to explain to them all that is said in the Law and the Prophets about himself. And so he would have gotten to the, the prophet of Daniel, and he would have said, and remember the story, Daniel? Remember the story about the fiery furnace? And they would have been like, yeah. And he would have said, you know, the, who was the fourth guy in the furnace? And I don't know. We've argued about that for 600 years. And, and Jesus would have said, that's the Messiah. And he hasn't revealed his identity to them yet, but essentially saying, that was me. That was me. I was there with them as they were in the, the hardest trial of their life to date. And, and friends, you need to realize that so that you will never forget this, that God is always with you. This is why this story's been retold, right? I believe it's historically accurate. I believe it's a valid uh, account. But the point is that we understand it so that we can respond to it in our lives. This is why it's retold. We need to understand that so that we understand this. God is always with us, especially in our time of trials. Our heart says, where are you, God? That's what our heart says. Where are you, God? And Jesus says, I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm here because I love you. And because I love you, I am here. And I'm never going to leave. I'm never going to forsake you. You are never going to be alone. And even if it seems like you're all by yourself and nobody else is around, that will never be just you. It will never be just you. It will always be you plus one. You're never going to be alone because I'm never going to leave you. You'll never be forsaken. And even when everything in your heart says, where is God? The reason this story is here and the reason we retell it is so that we become convinced in our heart. He's right here. He's here with us in the trial we're never alone. It's always us plus one. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I've asked Daryl just to sing a song, just to create some space for us to respond to this, um, because I don't think that there's any kind of sort of, I mean, we would, we'd address this totally differently if we're trying to intellectually convince one another that this is true. We're not even really fighting on that battlefield this morning. Instead, we're trying to operate on the level of the heart, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this truth um, on the heart level. Which means, I think, you, you just simply need to allow yourself to be reminded of this reality. And then to pray for the grace to respond in a way that recognizes it. So, uh, I've got some questions on the sermon notes for later, which I think might be helpful in breaking through. But for, for right now, for the next two minutes, um, I invite you to sit and rest in the knowledge that you're not alone and to allow that simple retold truth to soak in again, water that dry ground again, remind you of a reality that you need to know in order to go forward in faithfulness and in courage. Amen? that
close to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. God, may the assurance of your presence with us go deep into our heart. Please give us faith to believe what our brain is pushing back against. Uh, May we walk along this well-worn path with those who have been faithful and courageous before us, who have been motivated by this simple truth that we will never be left alone, that you're always gonna be with us. I pray for those who are in the furnace this morning, who are in trials, who are really being tested who are barely holding on, their hearts are broken, they're devastated, and they're calling out for you and wondering if you're there. And I pray that you and your goodness would assure them of your awareness of them, of your love for them, and most importantly, that you're right there with them. Please, Lord, embrace your people today. Fill us with comfort and courage for tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.